Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hat. This one's going to be so good. This is someone actually just came on Twitter and begged us to interview this person and we said, okay, Alina, who's here? We've got with us Rachel Lance, who is a biomedical engineer and an assistant consulting professor at Duke University. And she's also an author. Many, many, many things. She's written her first book, which is called In the Waves, which is about her quest to solve the mystery of a Civil War submarine. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Hi. Oh, she, uh, you had me when the person said, you have to get Rachel on um, because she blah, 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 blah. You had me at Hunley. I was like, <laughs> Alina loves boats. Oh, really? <laughs> Alina and I probably have a lot in common. No, Alina. Um, so she has learned the difference between a boat and a ship. But once you chuck submarines into the mix and they're not ships, they're boats, then she gets confused. Yeah, you get a lot of angry letters if you mix that up. <laughs> that will be me receiving like it yeah i'm terrible i mean look to be fair alex has been throwing boat stuff at me ship boat stuff, whatever she's been throwing it all at me recently and i didn't even know what the huntley was till mm-hmm. i read your book so you did oh thank you yes well okay let's assume that like alina some of our listeners don't know what the hl huntley was so what is it when is it and what is the history behind it Okay, so the Hunley was a submarine that was used during the American Civil War. And it wasn't the first submarine in history, but since the American Civil War started in 1861, it makes it one of the earlier submarines that we know about. And it's kind of known for being, the quote you always hear is, the first submarine to ever be successful in combat. That uh, February 17th, 1864, it cranked its way up to a Union ship, a Union vessel uh, that was off the shore of Charleston, South Carolina. It used a 200-pound black powder bomb to send that Union ship to the bottom of the ocean. That was the first time that any submarine had ever successfully sunk an enemy ship. Oh, I love that part. Oh, I love Charleston. I did the little boat ride out to the fort where the first shot was fired from. Mm, yeah, Fort Sumter. I've done that too. Yeah, I know. It's really and then interesting. you have to walk along the South Battery picking which house you would have if you had many millions of dollars. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that I particularly did that activity. I tried to climb on things and that was frowned upon. Oh, no, I got shouted out for touching one of the cannon. Yeah. <laughs> which just made me want to touch it more like a child. I know, right? Yeah. You always want to touch the history, even though it's not yeah. allowed. And who doesn't want to climb on a cannon? I mean, don't. Yeah. If anyone ever leaves a heavy piece of artillery unmanned with me around, I'm going to try and climb all over it. Like a well, 
We were kind of talking about this a little bit before recording, but in some of the World War I battlefields in France, there's just stuff lying around. So if you ever mm. really do want to climb on old cannons, I think that one, that might be oh, early. There's loads in Gallipoli. There's like, it's still in situ and stuff that you can just, they're just sitting in the middle of a field and you can go and admire them. They're great for uh, group photos, like soldiers used to do themselves, actually, where they all get on the barrel of the gun for a picture, except the people I go with are all middle-aged men and it's funny watching them try and climb on it. <laughs> oh, hold on. Wait a minute. Am I recalling a picture of uh, some World War One historian we shall not mention? Peter Hart? Uh, uh, yes, we shall not mention. <laughs> My Peterkins. Yes. Peterkins acting immaturely in a public setting? It would never happen, Alina. With a cannon? Am I, am I mistaken in this? Or was no, someone you're else? not mistaken. And it, oh. was, it was substituting for a part of his anatomy. It's like, oh, that, no. oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> the say, that's also the obvious joke. Well, I mean, for, a, for a man, you know what they're like. <laughs> Any excuse for a dick joke and they're all over yeah. it, aren't they? they yeah. <laughs> anyway, the Hunley. The Hunley, yes. So what happened to it on that fateful day, 17th of February, 1864? Well, it kind of disappeared. And that's where I think it gets really interesting personally, because if you find something immediately afterward and you open it up and you're like, oh, everybody's dead. Usually that's pretty obvious, like the ending of that story and how it went. Um, it, it can be pretty much gleaned from from the remains that are there. But with the Hunley, after it set off its black powder torpedo, there's one witness who said he saw it as he was looking backward, as he's like scrambling to get away from his sinking ship and climb up in to save himself. He says he looks backwards and he sees it. But aside from him, no one ever saw it again until 1995 and that's why i think the hunley is kind of a mystery that's captivated especially definitely a lot of america and as i've been learning a lot of the world because when you have a mysterious ship of ghosts that disappears after its successful attack and then is never heard from again that's where people really start to start to get intrigued always and i so just can you tell people a little bit as well? Because I guess the oldest submarine they'll be able to envisage is like a German U-boat in World War One. So, but we're going back even more primitive than that, aren't we? I mean, you'd have to be a nutcase to get in one of these things. Yeah. Oh, man, I would totally do it. But I'm a little nuts and obsessed with submarines. But I would probably bring scuba equipment with me. Yeah. So <laughs> the earliest... The earliest known submarine prototype is actually 1520. So 1520s England on the River Thames. And personally, I think it was kind of a fraud. Like, I don't think it was really a submarine. I think it was a charlatan who just sort of made a thing where the water rushed over it. Um, but one of the court, it was the court of one of the King Jameses. I would have to look back up the number and he put on this big demonstration and there were all these people invited and this supposed submarine was the first one to have really known to exist. From there, we kind of jump around a little bit. Like people have tried to make other prototypes. Most of them were not really for a specific purpose. There was one during the American Revolution called the Turtle. That's usually pretty famous. Nelson um, called them Bulgaria sneak dodges below, didn't he? He was not impressed because <laughs> they're like ungentlemanly. Yes, there were some very gentlemanly restrictions on warfare at the yeah. time. And like so, if you get an enemy boat before you sink it, you're supposed to give people time to get off and get away in the lifeboats and then you blow their boat up. But obviously you can't yeah. do that with a torpedo, can you? You can't go, hey, exactly. guys. 
<laughs> you are the gentlemanly thing to do was yeah. to give them a fighting chance to kill you back first. Yeah. Which, like, obviously in 2020, we no longer consider that one of the rules of warfare, right? Yeah. But um, at that time period, they'd be like, no fair. Um, if we can't see you, that's not okay. And so that's how they got the nickname Infernal Machines, mm-hmm. which literally meant just like infernal as in from hell. I'm feeling a little left out because it's all boaty stuff and I don't understand, but it's fine. Um, oh, that's okay. <laughs> boats, boats just keep us out of the water, Alina. Do you know what I like? Yeah. Rachel, we've made progress because she just said boaty stuff in relation to a submarine. She doesn't know it. She's starting to comprehend that a submarine is not a ship. Okay, water your, your flotation thing is getting in. Yeah, I know. We <laughs> yeah. are drowning. In yeah. You're making so much progress. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So talk to us about this project. Um, Talk us about when the submarine was discovered. Because it was in a certain state, wasn't it? Yes. So this submarine is extremely well preserved because it was such an unusual case. People had looked for it for a very, very long time. Obviously, this thing had become something of a myth and a legend. and Nobody knew what happened to it. But what happened was everyone was looking between the ship they sank and the shore because everyone assumed that they, of course, were going to try and head back to shore after they set off their bomb. But what, what ended up occurring was it ended up drifting farther out to sea. And so there was a gentleman who found it in 1970, and he had a very credible claim, but there were some bureaucratic issues, and it kind of got just forgotten again. So then in 1995, another group finds it. This time, it's led by the author Clive Cussler. So he's obviously really famous. He's this huge best-selling author. A lot oh, of he's also know. so institutionally racist. <laughs> I love it. I've read all of his books and I laugh my way through them. Oh, really? We do a Clive Costner diversion. But yeah. in Mayday, have you read that one? What is it? The Mediterranean Caper, it's called as well. The one where he finds the uh, woman on the beach that he's never met before. And she's I haven't. Oh, so no, crying, I haven't. Right? There's a hot yeah. woman in a red bikini and she's crying. And they always start with a hot woman yeah. in a bikini. The only thing that changes is the color. But she goes, he goes, Why bikini. are you crying? And she goes, because I had a boyfriend once and he died in a car crash. So Dirk Pitt slaps her, screams at her. (laughs) He's never met her before. Slaps her, screams at her for ruining her life and then screws her right then and there. And she loves it. Is this an actual porno? What's happening? No, I'm very confused. This is no, a, it's a book. book. This we just diverted. And then he kind of it was all the, the when in the seventies and eighties it was all the sneaky Russians, and then after that he goes on to these these awful like words he used to describe anyone of Asian descent now. He's always complaining about evil slanty eyed baddies, and you're just like, if you weren't old enough to be everyone's great granddad, you would not get away with this. Oh my gosh. But I love it. I love him because. But yeah, anyway, he played it. As long as, yeah, like stuff like that could be really funny as long as you can put it in context. And yeah, you're like, I mean, oh, it was, is... well, it's funny because yeah. he talks about Dirk Pitt like he's the hottest man alive and he's like, and he was there in his salmon colored slacks and his his sport coat and you're thinking oh my god he looks like a fruitcake what is he wearing but oh and what's hilarious he goes for a phase as well and my brother always loved this that he would describe the hottest woman alive and it was Sigourney Weaver um but yeah it was it's just it's it's fucked up as all hell we love Clive 
He's an idiot. That's funny. He's he's kind of like America's Duke of Edinburgh, Alina. So he says lots of really inappropriate things that you shouldn't really say. But he's so old and so beloved that people are like, oh, he's like my granddad. Oh, well, he passed away earlier this year. But, no, yeah. he didn't. Yeah, he did. I really <laughs> so. this. He'd been oh, yeah. hadn't he? Yeah, well, he was just older, so, yeah. you know, we all go sometime. But Yeah, he had a long and fulfilling life. Yeah, he had a very successful life overall. Yeah. But um, you'd what love this then. Without four new cluster books a year in my life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> just anyway. read up. It'll be fine. <laughs> the, Hundley. <laughs> the Hundley. So 1995, his team, he's, I mean, he's obviously was wealthier than all get out. And so he mm. used a lot of his money to kind of fund these like nautical expeditions, which were like him and his buddies just trying to go out and find old stuff. Well, it so was what based I... on the books, wasn't it? So he, in the books, Alina, it was Numa was this government institution that did all this mm-hmm. ship hunting stuff. But obviously they weren't government, they were private, but he kind of did found that organization, didn't he? And he did do a lot of like ship hunting and treasure hunting and stuff. Yeah, so he named a lot of stuff after the things that he put in his book. So his or- real-life organization was named NUMA after the organization in his books that was finding all of these things. Like, his real-life son was named Dirk. Dirk after Dirk Pitt, things yeah. like that. So in 1995, they announced this find of the Hunley, and they figured it out because it's, like, farther away from the ship they sank which um, most people hadn't thought of before. And so they did something very smart. They were like, we're not telling anyone where it is until we have legal agreements in place for who's going to bring it up, how they're planning to do that, and how they're planning on conserving it afterwards, which I think is really smart because then there was no fighting. Like everyone wanted to agree so they could get the Hunley. But anyway, year 2000, there's a team, multiple people. So this is a lot of organizations. This is a multi, multi-group multi effort. Um, I was not there. I was still pretty young at that time. But um, the National Park Service is doing a lot of it. And they bring this thing up. And they take it to Charleston, South Carolina, where there's like a conservation tank. The team of archaeologists are already waiting. And so that's where it got, to me at least, way more interesting. Because when they start taking this thing apart which they have to do in order to access some of these internal spaces in order to conserve them and make sure they don't just rest to nothing. When they start doing that and they start removing this silt, just very carefully, like archaeologists, making sure they're mapping everything out, they're mapping out the human remains of the submarine. And they're discovering that not only are all eight of the crew still in there, but all of the crew are just sitting where they were at the time of the attack. And so... Yeah, so not a one of them has any sign of skeletal trauma at all. So there are no broken bones, there are no broken vertebra. Everyone is just chilling. And the guy even at the the pilot of the boat, so not he wasn't technically a captain, but he was a captain of the submarine. He would have this tiny little extra bench because he's supposed to be able to look out the front. And his body had been kind of encased in silt first, right? It had come in right above him. And so everyone else had sort of decomposed and fallen down into the bilge area, which is the bottom for Alina. Um, and, um, <laughs> it's for that. The thing. bottom, the, the foot, <laughs> the foot well, if you will. Um, but, um, so, he, but he was just like sitting on his little bench with his hand on his knee 
and his ankles crossed, just kind of slumped over exactly where he would have been in the moments of the final attack. And that's where people, including me, really started to pay attention because that, that became very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so talk to us about unraveling the puzzle. Where do you start? Well, so for me, I was a graduate student. I had already been working for the United States Navy for several years, and I had been building underwater breathing systems. So I was an engineer who was already like really invested in this world of underwater physiology and how human beings survive underwater. And then when I came back to graduate school, um, I was still working for the Navy, and so I was still trying to keep all my projects really kind of military-oriented because they were paying me. And uh, what I did was I was looking at problems of underwater explosions. The thing with explosions that everybody gets wrong is that it is not like the movies. The movies just lie to you. I know. I'm sorry. I'm like that guy who leaned over your shoulder in the movie and was like, well, actually, the physicists are wrong. (laughs) There was no flashing light and a big bang. It was just a dud. Exactly. Um, So in real life, they're still, I mean, they're still pretty fun. I love explosives, but people are not hurtled and thrown across the room. Like that can happen. You can create an explosion big enough to do that. But if that's occurring, then people are so far beyond the lethal threshold that there is no chance of surviving it. I'm going off you. You've already, you've already killed Clive Cussler for me. (laughs) podcast and now you're reading every action movie i've ever watched i know i'm sorry i already apologized in advance stop recording you just want out of a boaty podcast shut up yeah <laughs> jason statham will never look the same you're gonna nice. be like oh are you gonna lie to me today jason yeah but, exactly. um, yeah no i apologize um, so <laughs> But anyway, so when, what you actually see with blast trauma is it just like what happened in the Hunley. You see people who just kind of fell over. And it's, that's especially true in the case that there's no shrapnel. So like inside of a boat or underwater, there's not really an opportunity for a shrapnel to fly super far, right? So you get these cases of people who are just there and then the bomb goes off and then they're just dead. Yeah, you do um, get this in World War One, actually, with shell fire that people, they're like, well, he didn't have a mark on him, but he died as a result of a shell blast. Yes, exactly. So there are so many cases from this, starting with World War One, and then World War Two. you see lots of reports of it as well. There are tons of reports um, from the troubles with Northern Ireland. There's, I forget the exact percentage, but it was something like 20% of the blast fatalities, they didn't have any other mark on them at all. And so what happens is it goes for your lungs, but we can get back to that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's how I got started on this project was I was already working on these projects, looking at underwater explosions. And my doctoral advisor just kind of wandered into my office one day. He was like, hey, what about the Hundley? And I was like, I don't know what that means. But of course, you know, I was a graduate student, so I lied. Um, <laughs> so I, like, I was like, sure, I can work on the Hundley. And then you just like Google it when he leaves, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. That's what Alina does. Um, every boaty podcast <laughs> yeah. she's still googling clive Cussler as we speak <laughs> stop giving away my secrets to everyone <laughs> yeah, I know. She's, she has read you out hard no, it's not it's a okay. secret that's what she doesn't realize everybody knows it's okay don't worry i'll get my own back yeah I'll bide my time 
<laughs> I'm going to start tagging you every time you use bone ship wrong on Twitter. Yeah. What? Like, at, at, you can join yeah. Phil Weir, who's already on my case for everything. So. Who we're interviewing next today, which I, I didn't set this up for my own amusement. She set it up herself. But anyway. <laughs> It'll be great. So It'll be great. You like. So anyway, um, yeah, that's how the project got started. And I thought it would be just like a little thing I looked at on the side, uh, in addition to my actual PhD work, which was going to be in unprotected swimmers in the water. And I got just kind of obsessed with it. It was just a mystery. I could not let it go. And so it spiraled wildly out of control from there. And how did you start unraveling it? Because to what uh, I'm still clueless. I still have no idea why they just sit in there. Yeah. Okay. Well, so the first and most obvious question is, did they just run out of air? Mm. And that I think is a very reasonable first theory because you're in an enclosed submarine and it's not very big. Uh, most people need breathing gas to live and they do too. And so my first step in the process was just to kind of take some of the math and some of the experiences that I had from working from the Navy, from building underwater breathing systems, where I already had experience doing these calculations of looking at how much oxygen do we need? How much carbon dioxide are we producing? What time do we have? Like, how long do we have before we need to surface? I'd already been working on these kinds of things. And so I applied that same logic to the Hunley first because my logic was if they could have plausibly just run out of air and then asphyxiated inside the submarine, then that's your easy answer, right? Yeah. But the math didn't add up. Because what ends up happening when, please don't try this. Like, here's looking at you. We're going to get into you and your mad. Yeah. If you're, if you're in a small enclosed space, like if you put your head in a plastic garbage bag, right, you actually don't run out of oxygen first. You build up carbon dioxide first. Okay. And carbon dioxide is because you're exhaling it. Carbon dioxide becomes really uncomfortable and really painful before you have a risk that you're going to pass out from lack of oxygen. And what that means is we have a warning when we do something stupid, which is, this is a good thing. It means if we're in an enclosed space and we're not getting enough ventilation, we will be able to tell that we are not breathing normally. So most people figure this out and then correct it themselves um, because carbon dioxide, the clinical term is hypercapnia, is so uncomfortable. You get this crazy headache. You get really nauseous. Um, your eyes start to hurt, you're breathing just insanely fast and super choppy, like you're hyperventilating. Mm. And my math, according to my math, said that these guys in the submarine had at least 10 minutes where they would have had to sit there breathing at five times their normal breathing rate or higher before they would have had any chance of losing loss. Losing uh, so this is how you know that they weren't, they would not have calmed, they'd have moved. They wouldn't have right. been, Yeah. Right. Like carbon dioxide literally induces panic. And I don't mean like people who aren't calm tend to panic when they feel carbon dioxide. I mean, like on a biological level, high carbon dioxide causes you to panic. And 
people don't just like sit there for 10 minutes and chill be like, oh, well, clearly we're out of gas and I can't breathe. I'm just going to hang out here in case it fixes itself. Like it's not a normal human response. Um, For me, that meant that nobody's sitting there for 10 minutes or longer. So they probably just didn't run out of gas. There was something else that happened. Like these guys didn't even try to unlock the back hatch. So like they didn't even try to open the door. Yeah, which would be that's flight is your first human instinct, isn't it? Exactly. Right. And we know they were on the surface. We know they attacked on the surface because they'd received orders to do so. Yeah. And because the people on Mahusatonic, the ones who survived, they saw them coming. They were like, oh, there's there's a submarine coming for us. So- <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> so what other options are there if they didn't asphyxiate that don't involve them getting up? Well, there are two other main options. Like, obviously, people come up with all kinds of weird little theories and stuff. One of the main theories was that it was something called the lucky shot, which was as the Hunley approached for her attack, the crew of the Housatonic were shooting at her. So they had rifles and handguns. They were not able to train their cannons toward her, but they were shooting at this boat with their small arms. And the lucky shot theory says like, oh, well, maybe they just got a lucky shot in and hit the pilot of the boat, or they hit it in such a way that it slowly flooded and sank. That, that one, again, like, it was more plausible before they found the boat because they yeah. found it, yeah, they found it really far away. It was 310 meters away, right? Um, if it had been really close, then that would have been more plausible. But 310 meters away, I did the math and how long it would have had to drift and how long it had to sink. It would have had to be drifting for at least 14 minutes to get that far away. So you kind of have the same logic is like, oh, well, our boat is very, very slowly filling with water. Let's just sit here and watch it. Yeah, it's not happening, is it? Yeah, you would do that. You would be like, this is You wouldn't even be in a submarine to start. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't let you near a submarine. Yeah. She'd be like riding the submarine from the surface. Oh, mate. She'd (laughs) like, they wouldn't be able to dive because she'd refuse to get inside. It would be deeply embarrassing for everybody else involved. And she'd be like, cowboy. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Strangelove style the whole way. So you start testing, don't you, for different possibilities. So what kind of things did you test for and how nuts were some of them? 
Well, um, I mean, it depends on your scale. Like if you're a normal person, then they probably sound Not pretty nuts. Yeah. But like, if you're, if you're like a blast scientist, I, I think it was, I think it was pretty fine <laughs> in my world. <laughs> but, um, well, what, one of the things I did was I made a scale model of the Hunley. And the Hunley itself was 40 feet long. Sorry, I don't know in metric because it's old timey. We're old timey units here. Yeah, but, so, I mean, yeah, okay, great. So it's 40 feet long. And so the largest size submarine that I could build and fit in my car without having to rent a truck every day was six and a half feet. And so I have a one sixth size scale model. That's what dictated that. And then I started setting off one six scale black powder charges. Um, and I want your life. <laughs> you say that now, but the reality is a lot <laughs> less fun because it's like super fun to talk about it later when you're in your house wearing your cozy pajama pants and like yeah. there's climate control and you've got a cup of tea. But like the day of a lot of our testing when we started, it was, it was near freezing. So it was near freezing out. Uh, we were on a, on a farm out in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. I was a, at least like a quarter mile, half mile from the nearest electrical outlet. So like to set up these experiments, I had to start by like soldering together a wiring harness to power everything I needed off of boat batteries. And so like, that's kind of the, that's kind of the nitty gritty reality of testing. Um, but yeah, so many men are falling in love with you listening. To you, you know that, right? <laughs> I could power all of your electronics, and she knows about electronics. <laughs> She's my dream woman. I know. My husband always jokes that all of my friends are eighty-year-old men, and I see no problem with that. I don't see so, any problem with that. Well, yeah, those are at least sort of sixty-year-old men who, like we, like we pointed out, climb all over guns like children. Exactly. I don't have any friends. Oh, because no. you're annoying. Can I be your friend? <laughs> Yay, I have two friends now. It's only oh. because I keep talking about depressing topics and everybody walks away. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't, you do go, like, walk into a pub and go, so the Holocaust is going to have a, an effect, isn't it? Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. <laughs> Whereabouts are you based, Rachel? I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, see, we now have this history hack cluster of awesome people in North South Carolina and Georgia. So we are oh, so really? road tripping, aren't we, when we were allowed out yeah. of the house again? Yeah. Yeah, you should. I'm my best rooms. friend in the whole world is in Raleigh, Durham. Really? Yeah, That's he's been great. on the podcast talking Aww. about the Queen Mary. <sighs> That's so exciting. I'll have to go back and look for that episode. Ah, anyway, so you start blowing stuff up. So I start blowing stuff up in the pond of a farmer who now thinks I'm bananas. And <laughs> Presumably he was getting paid though, right? No, he oh, was just okay. a nice guy who really liked history. And I was like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, he was just a nice dude who had literally no reason to help me. But, um, Arthur, this, you underestimate him other than watching explosions all day. Yeah, he actually didn't even stick around for most of them because it was like a working farm. So he was yeah. like off doing farmer stuff. <laughs> but, um, we did let his grandkids push the button a lot. Okay. They really, yeah, they really <laughs> liked pushing the button. So, but yeah, so we start pulling stuff up and it's me and a former army explosives expert and then um, an agent from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms, and Explosives. So it was all safe and legal. I feel yeah. important to put that, put that. I still have all 10 fingers and all 10 toes. 
But yeah, we were building these like little black powder scale bombs and we were putting them in the pond, attaching them to the boat. And of course, this is scientific, right? We can't just like set off charges for fun. Or I mean, we can. No, you've got to like record everything. Yeah. yeah. You got you to gotta make squiggly lines from it. So um, we had sensors in the water as well as sensors of several different varieties inside the boat. And we did a couple different configurations looking at the way the charge was propagating. But basically, we were looking at my theory, which was that the blast was strong enough to propagate inside the hull of the submarine and cause blast fatality to the crew inside. Ah, so what did you rule out with your testing? Well, I ruled out basically that the the charge would cause a hull breach, which I always thought was a weird theory because I'm like, we have the submarine, like we know it's intact. Yeah. But I subjected mine to blast probably 50 times and it's still intact. It's actually sitting right next to me while we chat. But um, You'll have to tweet a picture of this. Yeah, that's fine. I'd be happy to. Is that the most unlikely thing you tested for? Well, we didn't directly test for it. Just be, it was just sort of ancillary, just, right? Yeah, so yeah, like we're blowing this submarine up anyway. Yeah, but, um, so you repeated explosions and just see what happens, rather than now I'm going to blow it up in this way because I think this will happen. Exactly. So we repeated explosions and we we did them a couple different ways to make sure that we were characterizing like how sensitive the problem is, meaning if I make a tiny change, does it completely change the results, which is always really bad. Like that's a bad outcome. Thankfully, that didn't happen. So it showed like it didn't really matter if we changed our setup, we could reconfigure things and we are still always getting the same result. So that that's part of why we had to do it a bunch of times. The other part is just because we had more black powder so why not set it off right fuck yeah i'm like i don't know what i'm gonna do with all this (laughs) i'm gonna give it back and go no no no, i ordered too much but then yeah yeah Yeah. Um, so what was which one did you think was quite plausible but actually turned out to be junk well i thought that originally the asphyxiation one was the most plausible okay Uh, aside from blast trauma For me, honestly, looking at the problem from day one, I was like, this looks like a blast accident. Um, Just because I've looked at so many case reports of other blast accidents, and they all show those same characteristics where it's like this person was sitting in a chair and they had no marks on them. Yeah, there's German Um, dugouts, isn't there, on the Western Front as well, where they're all just sitting around a table. Yes, absolutely. There's so many cases of this, especially the enclosed space makes it worse. So like the German dugouts, um, Vonnegut talked about, Kurt Vonnegut talked about it in World War II. I quoted him once where he was like digging into bomb shelters and the people were just like sitting there. They're just in their chairs or they're just like playing cards. There was um, a particularly gruesome case that I'll throw in here for Alina during World War II where there was a bomb that happened at the entrance. A bunch of people had taken shelter inside like a tube station so they were Mm -hmm. down the stairs and a lot of them were standing up wow so yeah it's obvious like the comforting part is at least that's quick like that's an indicator of how fast it is like these people don't even necessarily process what's happening and so obviously it's very sad but like if you're gonna go that's a pretty good way to go um, and, and that also explains like with the Hunley, why they weren't trying to open the door, why they weren't trying to escape. 
they weren't even trying to pump out water. Like they had pumps inside in case the submarine started filling with water and they didn't even set them to pump out water. And so that's why to me, like looking at it from day one, I suspected the blast was the cause, but I wanted to make sure that I approached it really scientifically and like evaluated everything as much as I could. Yeah. I mean, what was the, what, it's the most ridiculous, like, out of there. I'm talking, like, Hitler escaped to Argentina, dumbass suggestion you came across. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm too nice to really bad people like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like calling people dumbasses. No, I, I, I try to be open to all ideas. I yeah. personally... There, there was some people that were suggesting that the heaving motion from the explosive made everybody hit their heads at the same time and fall unconscious, which like, mm, that, mm, I mean, no. it's not, it's, I wouldn't call it dumbass. No, but it's, but it's like, like it's, cl- it's clutching at straws, isn't it? Yeah, like the odds that some, I mean, we can actually calculate this probability. I'm not going to because we'd have to like pause for 30 minutes or whatever, but that would be boring. But um, you could calculate the probability that someone is knocked unconscious, but they don't have a skull fracture. Because remember, like we have these skulls, so we know these skulls are not fractured. Yeah. Um, and it's it's like a pretty narrow window, right? It's not. It's not that... I mean, the odds that you would have eight people have that simultaneously are pretty small. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we, we've had fun with this. We really have. But there were yeah. eight guys in that submarine. Yes. Did you answer it? How did they die? They died of blast trauma, according yeah. to the data. Yeah. So the, the submarine did show propagation through the hull. And again, like, this is the thing that happens with blasts. So you actually get propagation inside bomb suits. It's just that it's usually so weak, it doesn't matter. Like, who cares if it's just a little squidge, right? Um, it doesn't, it's not going to hurt anyone. But since the submarine was less than 16 feet away from its own charge, and that charge was the size of a beer keg, now you have a scenario where it can actually propagate enough in there to do some real damage. I kind of, I'm kind of relieved because I would hate, you know, that whole sort of trapped in a submarine underneath the surface, unable to get out. I mean, we kind of know from the position they were found in that didn't happen, but that whole rising panic and being trapped, that didn't happen. It was quick. That didn't happen to them. So yeah, yeah, uh, the American Civil War is just like such a fraught topic. And there are people who still get just incredibly passionate about it. So I do think it's kind of worth pointing out like that didn't happen to this crew. Yeah. But during the preliminary testing of the prototypes and stuff like that, there is a substantial amount of primary source evidence that they were forcing slaves to test the boats out and it didn't always go well for the slaves. So yeah, yeah, I tend to be a bleeding heart kind of person, but obviously like in that scenario, I definitely feel worse for the slaves who are put in these boats against their will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love this. What have you, (laughs) tell everyone about the book because I really want people to be able to go away and read more about you blowing stuff up. Oh, thanks. Um, so many explosions, I promise. <laughs> so the book is called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. It just came out April 7th, which is very exciting because everybody was talking about the Civil War through the entire month of April. And um, 
yeah, no one was distracted by anything else. And uh, yeah. <laughs> not at all, not in the least, not yeah. in 2020. It came um, out just as the world ended. Yeah, like everyone locked down the week before. So everyone was compulsively talking about the Civil War the yeah. whole week. <laughs> but, um, well, we're locked down again right now in England. So uh, everybody go out and buy it. Yeah, it'll be really great. I actually mailed two to some English friends um, who are helping me do research for my next book. But yeah, it, it's, uh, it's the story of this submarine. And so it was very difficult to classify in terms of genre. It is part history. So there is new stuff in there that comes from primary source documents about the Hunley, about the American Civil War that's never been published before. There's also a lot of science. So you're going to learn more about explosions. I wrote a chapter on black powder, which sounds boring is when you say that out loud, but I promise you it was so fun because it does involve bat guano. And, um, yeah. Yeah. is going to fall in love with you. He's our resident okay. science historian geek. Um, right. Yeah. yeah I'm sure we have plenty to talk this. about. Yeah. yeah. Um, have but to yeah. Come down the pub one day, uh, for our show where we just get drunk and debate history's silliness. That sounds fantastic. I am in. Um, but yeah, so that it's all kind of tied together with just like little bits of graduate school to kind of make those two storylines make sense together. Rachel, seriously, that was really, really interesting. And I love the book. It was it was quite a technical book. So I had a hard time wrapping my mind around it. But I got there eventually. You're here and the questions were ready. So thank you so she much. She knew oh, yeah. that a submarine was a boat. Yes, I'm very proud of you because not everyone does. Be proud of yourself because you made that happen last week. That (laughs) still wasn't happening. I will also say that there is a lot of science in the book, but I've designed it so that if you're not a math person, you can easily skip those parts and not miss anything. So uh, <laughs> I wrote it that way on purpose. So That's don't how Elena that. got to the end. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like, this paragraph is not for me, don't worry. It's short and you can skip to the next one. Don't feel that. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms uh, marcus is currently working on some benefits for you so uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 